every single team member, every single employee in our company, every one of them took a substantial pay reduction, most of them 50%. There were a couple of people that on top of a 50% pay reduction deferred additional compensation. So they said, well, you know, my wife is making enough at her job and I've got enough saved. I only need to take home about 10% of my salary. I'll be able to cover my costs, my mortgage or whatever. They all came to the table and I will never, ever forget that. I think one of the most important things that I learned during that time frame was the concept of entrepreneurs are in their office working their butts off during those five hours that other people are hanging out at a social event or a bar or whatever else. It's a great question, really insightful question, Austin, because they voted to remove me as CEO of my own company. I still own more than 50% of it. I still was the owner, but they fired me as the CEO of my own company. It was the most devastating thing that ever happened to me as an entrepreneur. My name is Jay Wilkinson. I am the founder and CEO of Firespring. We are located in Lincoln, Nebraska. I am 54. I've been at this quite a while. My company, Firespring, we refer to as the world's first inside out agency have been in the world of creating great marketing materials and content as an ad agency for our clients for many years. And a couple of years ago, we made a pretty sharp pivot to really start focusing on working with companies that exist more for their why than their what. We want to work with companies that are trying to elevate the world around them, create an impact in their communities, referring back to the old triple bottom line and making sure that you're focused the social impact you make, environmental impact, and of course, the employees and the people that work for your company. We're really focused on all those things. We are a B Corporation. We were featured in Inc. Magazine as one of the 50 best companies to work for in America. We really care deeply about all that stuff. And I think that really turned our attention towards wanting to work with other like-minded companies, other companies that focus more on their why than their what, was just this frustration that I had that there were so many companies, businesses, products and services out there and entrepreneurs and people within those companies who say they're one thing and you get to know them a little bit, you do business with them and it turns out that they're something entirely different. And in 2018, we all live in glass houses. Everything is changing so fast. I don't believe that companies in the future will be able to be in business if they're not doing what they say they'll do and living by the standards that they say they live by, you know, actually living their values and not just hanging them on a poster on the wall in an office. The reason we call ourselves an inside out agency is that we not only help them now, this was the big pivot. We always help them with their marketing, building communities of influence around the products and services and helping them just become great stewards in their product lines. But we learned that so many of the leadership teams inside of these companies were not aligned in their why and their purpose and creating culture that people just wanted to be part of. So now we come in and we also, in addition to doing the marketing on the other side of things, we come in and work on the inside with leadership teams to help them get alignment around what it means to be a company of purpose. So we worked at them from both the inside out and we work with them from the outside in. And it's been just so much fun ever since we made that change and we are loving life. How big is your company today? We have more than 200 employees, two locations, one in Lincoln, Nebraska, one in Omaha, Nebraska. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of around 10,000 clients in all 50 states and 12 countries. So everyone there is in Nebraska, all the people that work with you and within your company? We have a handful, maybe 20 remote team members, but the vast majority of our team are in either Lincoln or Omaha, one of our two major facilities. One of the cool things that I've started doing, people have been listening long enough, it's like, I've always wondered where a guest is coming from if I heard it on another podcast, because everyone has different experiences based on where they've been raised. But to be this size and be in Lincoln, Nebraska, tell us what that's like, because that's in the middle of the US, most people know, and haven't talked to anyone out there. It might be a little bit more difficult versus say, if you were like in New York or something like that. It's interesting. You know, I've spent lots of time, I lived in New York City, San Francisco, different places in my younger years. And when I built this agency, I came back to Lincoln, Nebraska to do it primarily because the people are just incredible. There are so many great 
culture stories among our team that goes all the way back to the beginning. We had some really hard days in the beginning where we almost went out of business. And I've got people that have been with me along this journey from the very beginning that are loyal, committed, and want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And it's just kind of a nature of the people here. So I love working here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I deliberately moved back from New York City to start this business here because my belief that the people that are here are incredibly talented and capable and skilled in all the different ways they need to be, but I didn't feel that same sense of loyalty and commitment that I felt when I was on either coast. So we intentionally wanted to start the business. We call it the middle of everywhere instead of the middle of nowhere. There's a strong sense of pride around this entire region. A lot of the people in the region, we now refer to it as the Silicon Prairie. And there's a lot of activity going on between Lincoln, Omaha, Des Moines, Kansas City, all the way up to St. Louis in this region. And it's fast growing. A lot of startups. I've been involved in the startup scene. I was on the founding board of an organization called the Nebraska Angels and have invested in a lot of startups and mentored a lot of entrepreneurs. There's just this hunger for people that want to make it and a work ethic to go along with it that is really rare. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't even know you lived in New York or San Francisco. So it's just kind of when I hear those type of ad agencies or anything that deal with this, I think a lot of people envision that's where those companies are. But the whole point of me talking to different entrepreneurs in different locations is the idea of no matter where you are, you can still do this. Yeah, it can be done from anywhere. So you started your company right when you moved back from New York. Why don't you tell us about the early years, like what year you started the company and kind of just take it from there? The original version of our company was actually a printing business. We started as a printing company back in 1992, August 3rd, 1992 to be exact. Like on paper? Yeah, like on paper. People don't use that anymore. So It's crazy. I got really infatuated with the printing business. I think when I was in college, I was the kid that always had the best looking report. You know, I would write a 10 page paper and it looked beautiful. It got like a C minus because it was horrible. I didn't spend any time putting it together other than making it look really good. So I fell in love with that business. And then I started about exactly eight different companies by the time I finally hit on one when I was in college called Campus Connection. That business grew rapidly and took me to New York City where I lived for four years sold that publication in 1991, a few years before the internet put it out of business. And in 1992, started a printing company that ultimately became what Firespring is today. I'll tell you, one of the earliest lessons I learned is the power of R&D, which we affectionately refer to as rip off and duplicate here. <laughs> My dad is the one that taught me this lesson. He encouraged me to go learn what others were doing. The printing company was a franchise of a large global printing franchise called Alpha Graphics. So I jumped on a plane, flew east, flew west, rented cars, and I literally walked into over a hundred different businesses, all Alpha Graphics stores, all fellow franchisees, and I asked them, if you could go back to the beginning and start over, what would you do differently? What's worked? What hasn't worked? I filled notebooks full of things. And I came back and launched our store and everybody at the franchise headquarters was shocked when we became the fastest growing franchising company history. We were the fastest to hit a million dollars in annualized sales. We hit it in our ninth month. This was in the early 90s? Yeah, this was in the early 90s. Okay. And it was all because we just learned what other people did and replicated it, iterated on it and figured it out. Okay. That's exactly why people are listening now, it, just to try to figure out what has worked no matter what industry they're in. Why don't you tell us about that journey and what you learned? You had sold the company in New York, so did you have a little money saved and you decided you'd spend a couple months trying to go to these other stores and figure out what would work before you launched your own store? Yeah, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. The magazine did really well for several years and then it started to wane in its effectiveness and popularity. We grew to 1.2 million copies of the magazine, about 350 colleges around the country. Other colleges had started doing other things. The internet was a whisper at the time. It wasn't really until 1995 the internet didn't become a thing. It was a different world then. I made a little bit of money out of it. It was enough to get started as a franchise. I lived on rice and beans and did some couch surfing in order to be able to find a place to sleep at night. Just like most entrepreneurs and startup ventures have gone, it was tough in the beginning. I got it figured out. We grew pretty fast. Could you tell us exactly what you learned from all those people though? Because I'm just curious if somebody else wanted to do something like what exactly you were figuring out on what those people said they would have done differently. So you learned from it. Well, you know, in any business, there are specific tactics that have been proven to work. And in our business, I'll give you one example that I did that really made a huge impact. I came back to Nebraska and about 
probably 45, 50 days before we opened, I started working on a little packet, like a welcome packet. And I hand delivered myself, my wife, and the guy that I had hired and brought in as our manager who was going to help me get this thing off the ground. The three of us literally walked into probably 800 different companies over the course of about 40 days, just cold and just dropped off a packet of stuff and had examples of some of the work that we had done as we were testing our printing equipment, coupons, little gifts that I had pulled together that were cheap. It cost me about, I don't know, $25 per basket that I delivered. But just walking in, having conversations with the print buyers, with the decision makers and all these different businesses, the first five days that we were open, we had more business than most of the other printing operations that had been in operation for a year because I did so much legwork up front and created relationships with people who made decisions about printing and did it the right way by walking in and talking to people and not just trying to send them something through the mail, a postcard that they would throw away or whatever. Yeah, I think that's really smart. That was the biggest thing for sure. That didn't take a lot of money, it sounds like. And it's just not, you could be turned down. But before you even open the business, it's like, okay, you're thinking, who are going to be my client? If I just go door to door, it just takes a lot of energy, right, to be able to do that. It took time, but not a lot of money, it would seem like. Not a lot of money, yeah. So Just a lot of effort and time. Right. So tell us after that first nine months. And what was the name of the company then that you were growing? It was an Alpha Graphics franchise. So we were Alpha Graphics of Nebraska. Okay. After like nine months, they're they're looking at your store and you're just killing it compared to how many other stores were there in the franchise? There were about 350 print shops in that franchise network at the time. Okay. So yeah, take it from there. It didn't take long, just a couple of years before we were in the top five in the entire franchise network and regularly showing up there. We were growing pretty fast. And then I mentioned already, you know, Al Gore invented the internet in the mid nineties. And thank you, Al, for generous contribution to society. We started developing websites as early as 1996. So as a company that's still building really high-end websites for our clients, we're one of the longest tenured, continually operating web shops in the world, doing it continuously since 1995. One of our early customers, this was a huge, huge thing for us. One of our employees was on a trip to Spain. It was one of his bucket list trips, the running of the bulls, of course, you know, it's something that everybody talks about and wants to do. He had a chance to do it. He was about 23 years old and he had just been working for us for a couple of months. He gets to Spain. He tells the story that he's standing on the third story balcony of his hotel and he's looking down and all these throngs of women are screaming and yelling and, you know, and he's looking down wondering what in the world did I do to deserve this? And he leans over and looks to the right and there's the Backstreet Boys on the balcony next to him. They had adjoining doors in their hotel. So he actually hung out with them that entire week. He went backstage, kind of jumped onto the entourage train and went everywhere they went. We still have it today. We have a copy of the original handwritten contract that he wrote on the back of the hotel receipt that said, we're going to design your website. We got the website for the Backstreet Boys band. And that was a big deal for us. It put us on the map regionally. We started doing website development for all the regional agencies around Lincoln and Omaha. At that point in time, ad agencies had been around forever, but they didn't really have the technology chops to do their own web work. So we did the website development work for them. They would put their name on it and ship it out. And that's how we got our start. And it took a couple of years, but in early 2000, we split those two companies into two. One went the printing company. The other became a company that ultimately is what Firespring is today. The original name was Level 100 Communications. I went out and raised money. We actually got VC funds. I went to... Well, do you mind if I stop you before we go there? No, yeah, go ahead. So how long had it been when you split the company? Like seven or eight years? We started in 92. We split the company in 2000. So it was eight years in. Okay. Tell us about that. Like, because it was basically two different companies. It sounds like even from the first time you started doing websites versus doing printing. Like, how do you know when it's time to split... I don't know if like you had employees crossing over doing different things. Just tell us about that if we have a similar business and we're yeah. maybe two different divisions. My experience is that it's driven by the market. It's driven by the clients. At that point in time, and I would say still to this day, a printing company, although printing was a much different business then than it is now, it's changed a lot. But then every company on the planet needed a printer. It was an incredibly good infrastructure type business because everyone that was in business needed a printing company to help them develop the materials they used. But printers were not known as being really highly technically proficient. 
So we knew really early on that our clients, the prospects that we were pitching website development to, didn't trust a print shop to develop a website for them. And also, I can say now, you know, I wouldn't have probably said it at that point in time, but I can say now there was also the element of had I developed the website design business through the franchise, we would have had to pay royalties to the Alpha Graphics franchise parent. And this didn't really make sense to be paying them royalties, 8% or whatever it was, on revenue that we were generating that really had nothing to do with the business that we were licensing through them. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, No worries, man. I came across a podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I I wanted to go for the highest tier, so. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling like a- Looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. And I'm in the franchising, okay, right? So, perfect. well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask, you know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah, <laughs> you really did start yeah. off with, I thought so yeah. too. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I, like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. So that seems like it makes a lot of sense. With the franchise, if anyone who's listening was going to get into one, was it worth it for you? Or do you have any suggestions on how to do it successful? Because it seems like the first thing that you did was the smartest thing. If you want to join a franchise, go meet everyone else in that franchise. It's less risk. You know what to do right, what they did wrong. Is there anything else, if anyone was buying into franchise, what they should look for and how they could benefit? Absolutely, Austin. I have always believed, I've said this to so many different young business people who have asked me questions about getting started. I believe the purchase of a franchise is a really great way for someone that wants to be in business for themselves to get started because you don't have to invent anything. You don't have to figure anything out. You just have to basically take the model that's before you and figure out how to apply that model the best way possible. I knew nothing about printing. I didn't know how to turn a printing press on, but using the systems, the processes that were already in place, I was able to build a really great business. And then I was able to grow and parlay that into other things. So I have a lot of friends that have developed franchises and that's all they do. They now have 30, 40, 50 franchises. 100 franchises or more. And the way I share it with people, I don't believe that a franchisee, someone who buys a franchise, that's not an entrepreneur. It's a business owner. I don't mean that to sound disrespectful. It's just a different type of enterprise and endeavor. When you're an entrepreneur, you're creating, you're essentially having to build systems and processes and procedures and invent them from the ground up. As a business owner, you get to take advantage of using other people's experience and just basically leveraging it the best and smartest way possible. I'm a huge believer that it's a great way for any business owner to get a start. I believe though that a franchise owner that has five, 10, 20 franchises, that's an entrepreneur. That's somebody who's figured out how to leverage and apply the tactics of business to grow. So I'm a big believer in franchising. I still think even to this day, it's a great way for anyone to get started. And I would say the number one thing for sure is just to do what you did and take the time to go visit them because if you just started your own printing company without any of that background, then you probably wouldn't be where you are today. Yeah, no question. It was everything. Tell us about the split in the company. It sounded like things were going well for both of these companies and then what you do in order to raise money for it. Yeah, so we had developed a software as a service. In fact, we were one of the earliest players in that business all the way back in 2000. We had developed a software platform and we actually developed that back in 1998 as part of this company, Level 100 Communications. It was initially a software that made it easy for a print shop to basically take online orders. So we went out and I looked at the numbers. There were 350 or so Alpha Graphics print shops in our franchise network, but there were 35,000 independently operating print shops all over the United States. And I saw a huge opportunity in that, that we had developed this strong skill set in website development. And we had built this really amazing website for our own printing business that had really taken off. It's one of the reasons 
we grew so fast and became one of the largest print shops in the Alpha Graphics Network so quickly is we had the technology side figured out. And we took that technology and essentially built a common platform that made it possible for any printer in America to pay us 99 bucks a month to use this platform and it would launch a website for them. It would allow them to manage all of the orders that their clients were coming to them and said, we need another hundred business cards or a thousand letterhead or whatever it was that they needed. So we built these online portals and started selling them to other print shops around the country and it took off like crazy. Within a year, we had over 2,000 clients that were paying us, you know, 100 to 200 bucks a month. We had realized the value of recurring revenue and that there was a huge opportunity here. We went out and found venture capital money to grow and expand so we could get this platform expanded nationally. And I will say that I was enamored with you know, the thought of raising capital. This was 2001. This was before the internet bubble burst. Keep in mind, valuations were through the roof. I mean, it was crazy the valuations people were getting. I went out to San Francisco and marched up and down Sand Hill Road in the Valley. I went to Austin, Texas. I went to Boulder and I had VC offers all over, but all of them were asking me to move my internet business, the company that we were really pitching the software as a service business before it was called that. They were asking us to move it to wherever they were because they wanted to be close by and be able to mentor and keep an eye on things. They didn't think it was possible for us to do it out in the middle plains. We turned those people all down and ended up taking money from a small VC firm that had never invested before. They were new. They had just formed. Warren Buffett? It was not Warren Buffett. It ended up leading to the single most humiliating and frustrating and difficult part of my entrepreneurial life. It took a little while. It took about 18 months because what happened is after we raised money, raised about $5 million. And then 2001, most people will probably know what happened on 9-11 that year. The economy after 9-11 and the terrorist attacks happened just kind of went into the crapper where previously we were closing three out of every four demos that we would do. They would buy our product. All of a sudden, we couldn't even get people to talk to us. And if we did get them to talk to us, we were now closing like one out of 10. It just changed overnight. It was crazy how fast it went down. Why do you think that? Because to me, it shouldn't really affect your business necessarily too much. What happens is when the economy is hurting and people are starting to cut back on costs, one of the things that people will cut back on is their marketing effort. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what they do. That's what a lot of small businesses do. And printers by nature, and again, keep in mind at this point in time, most of our clients were printing companies. Printers were struggling because people were cutting back 20, 30%. They weren't printing and mailing and doing direct mail and doing all the things that they were doing prior to 2001. They just cut back in all of their expenses. And so our clients were hurting and reeling from the decline in business. And they just weren't open to having conversation. It just was disastrous. And I made a lot of mistakes. I can look back now with a little more open mindset on how I did. I didn't perform well during that time frame. I was too slow. I didn't want to lay off a bunch of our people. And I should have, but I didn't. We had recently expanded where we had sales and marketing executives in 10 major metropolitan areas all around the country. We had expanded into a new building and were growing fast. It just had so much going on. And, and I was caught up in that a little bit. And we weren't investing in $2,000 chairs or anything like that, but we invested a lot in people. And I didn't cut our labor fast enough or nearly deep enough. And so we were burning a lot of cash. And my board of directors, and I also made a lot of mistakes in terms of how I set up my board. You know, I was so excited to bring on these high profile people that had so much experience in business. These were professional venture capitalists that had been around the block several times. And so I wanted to load up my board with these experts, these people that I knew could help me. And I made mistakes. I actually gave control of my board I weighted it towards our investors. And so on a vote of four to three, they voted to remove me as CEO of my own company. I still owned more than 50% of it. I still was the owner, but they fired me as the CEO of my own company. It was the most devastating thing that ever happened to me as an entrepreneur. And when was this? This was in 2002. Okay. Those two years were pretty harsh on you. Yeah. I call them the dark days. So tell us what happened from there. I guess so. We have one thing we learned is not to give the majority share to the investors, right? Yeah. I certainly have never done that again, nor would I. <laughs> right. 
I've learned my lessons. The ensuing two to three months were so difficult. I had to sit down with our staff. We had around 45, 50 employees at the time. And these were incredibly loyal people, people who had been with me from the very beginning and people who would run through a brick wall to help me out. And part of the reason I was in the situation I was in is because I was having their backs. You know, I didn't want to just send them home packing, hand them a box and say, you're out of here. We can't afford to keep you. And that was part of the reason that I was fired in the first place. So what I did is I rallied together. I have so much gratitude and appreciation for some really important people in my life. A couple of key people, some you would refer to them as angel investors, a couple of people that I knew well, who trusted me, who knew me. And most importantly, it was my older brother and my dad. My older brother is a real estate developer, and he actually took a property that he was planning to develop that he had purchased about a year earlier than that. And basically, he had it debt-free because he was getting ready to develop this big plot of land. And he went out and got a huge bank loan on this property that he had just purchased and essentially mortgaged his future and wasn't able to develop that property. It turned out for like another five years, but got enough cash together. So he came up with cash and my dad sold some of his stuff. He got a second mortgage on his house and we borrowed enough money through my family and then mostly through other friends as well. And we bought the VCs out, paid them every penny that they put in. And at the end of that, my accountant still makes fun of me to this day because when we wrote the final check to the VC firm to buy out their shares, I added a penny onto the final number because I didn't want to ever say that someone invested in me and didn't get more than they put in. It was a kind of a silly little thing in my head at the time, but we got them out. We bought the investors out. And two years later, we had a million dollars in net operating profit in the business. That's how fast we turned it. It was an exhilarating ride after we got them out, but it was a six month process to go through that collection of angel investors that I had to pull together to get the VCs out. It was a tough time, but we did it. We got them out. And eventually I was able to pay back all of those investors and a few of them still have ownership in the company to this day. How much did you have to come up with? We had to buy out of the $5 million that we raised, around 2.8 million of it was from the VC folks that we had brought on board. So we had to come up with 2.8 million and one cent. Did your mom or anyone else in your family think your brother and dad were crazy to have that type of financial support from the family? And, you know, most people have family support, but that's another thing to also throw debt or get a second mortgage on your home and your brother putting that much debt on a yeah. development. I think most everybody thought that they were crazy and that I was crazy, but I think that people believed in what we were doing. We had a good business. I think one of the most important things that I learned during that time frame was the concept of vulnerability and the importance of just being open, transparent, honest, and vulnerable with people when you're struggling and not trying to, you know, walk down the street and everybody you see, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. My mother and I used to have this conversation a lot. My mom died of breast cancer in 2011, which was a really hard thing for me to go through because I was with her for most of the last year. And I remember she used to have people, we'd be sitting down on a, like a little table having coffee at a cafe somewhere and somebody would walk by and say, my mother's name was Lynn. They would say, hi, Lynn, how you doing? And she would say, great, thanks. And she would you know, give them a thumbs up or whatever. They didn't know that she was dying of breast cancer because she didn't broadcast it. She didn't tell most people. And she used to look at me and say, you know, these people have no freaking idea of what I'm going through or what we're going through. And that's the way most entrepreneurs are. We close off, we kind of pile shit under the rug and kind of heap up a rug in the center of the floor and there's a giant lump and we just try to get people to ignore it and pretend like it's not there. But I learned during that phase of my life to be open and vulnerable and I talked about what I was going through with all of the people that were close to me in, in my life, especially our team members, our employees. Those people that went through that with me and I've left some things out that are really important. Every single team member, every single employee in our company, every one of them took a substantial pay reduction, most of them 50%. There were a couple of people that on top of a 50% pay reduction deferred additional compensation. So they said, well, you know, my wife is making enough at her job and I've got enough saved. I only need to take home about 10% of my salary. I'll be able to cover my costs, my mortgage or whatever. They all came to the table and I will never ever forget that. It was during that time when the culture of our company was forged. We became so focused on helping each other 
that there were people that offered up their homes to some of our younger single employees, you know, hey, I've got a spare bedroom or a bed, you don't need to pay rent. And then that way they could defer more compensation so that we could make it. Every week we would sit down with them, show them the numbers. And so they knew how we were doing financially. It's the point in time where we started doing open book management with our team. But just sharing everything, being open, transparent with people, letting them know where you are, having hard conversations when they need to be had, that's everything. And it got us through and it's become the core center. It's kind of the spine of our culture to this day that we have that kind of relationship with our employees. Did you have something in place or did you think like later on you'd repay them somehow? Or was there any talk of that for employees to be able to do that for you? Obviously, it's amazing, right? I think everyone yeah. would hope that that's what they could have. But few probably have that. I imagine in the back of your head, you're like, someday I want to repay them. Or it seems two years later, you're already way ahead of maybe where you thought you'd be after buying back the company. Yeah, you know, in the back of my head, I knew that I was going to do everything within my power to make sure that they were appreciated and compensated for that. And they were, you know, we were able to turn things around. All the people who deferred compensation were paid in full eventually. And all the people that had cut their compensation back, they were brought back up to the previous level of compensation before those cuts happened. We were able to do all that. And then we went through a lot as a company. We've grown so much since then. We now with over 200 people, there were only 40 of us around at the time when all of this went down. So about half of those are still here. I would say that the average employee in our company today really doesn't know. They don't really feel the agony and the stress, the frustration that we went through back in those days because we've come so far. They do feel the residual outcome of that, which is a culture that just totally caters to the people in our organization. You know, we have this thing, we call it the fire spring promise. It's something that we talk about constantly with our team and everyone knows it. And it's all about just making sure that we're on the same page with what we believe in. And it starts off by saying that we value people above profit. If we take great care of our people, our people will take great care of our clients. That's the first line in the fire spring promise. And it goes on to talk a lot about, it's pretty short, it goes on to talk about transparency and living our values and cultivating what works and our growth, because the more clients we have, the more impact we can make. And our clients are aware that this is how we operate and they want to do business with somebody who treats their people that way. It's the nature of, again, a 2018 business, in my opinion. Every company on the planet should be thinking about becoming either a benefit corporation in their state. And there's now legislation passed in all 36 states. We're in 36 states. Five more states are pending right now to pass benefit corporation legislation, which simply means as a business that you exist for something more than just simply shareholder profit, that you exist to create impact in your community and or to impact the environment in some way. And your objective as a company, in addition to profit, also includes creating impact in the community that you live, work, and play. And I think every business in America should be focused on that and figure out what their flavor is. Tom Shoes has buy one, give one. And Patagonia has just these amazing ways that they support the environment and give back socially as well. And the companies of tomorrow are going to be the companies that figure that part out, that figure out how to translate the power of their business to create impact in their community. And the employees that work for that company, they're all going to want to work for companies that are aligned in purpose with them. It's not going to only be about how much money can I make? It's what kind of impact can I make? Can I be part of something that's bigger than myself by being part of this company? That's where things are headed. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was, it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy, as you can just tell, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. Yeah, I wrote that down. I didn't want to brush over because I did notice you did say B Corp in the beginning and I noticed it on your bio. Yeah, we can definitely touch on that some more later. But you're saying your employees now don't necessarily feel the same pain that you had to go through about 15, 16 years ago with you buying back the company and being in trouble with the economy. Mm -hmm. Is that because financially, did y'all like make sure you have a lot more savings? How do you make sure that didn't happen again with the downturn in the economy again with all these employees you had at the time and most of them still there or at least half of your sand 
how do you make sure that going forward that that wasn't going to be an issue again? Because I think that's where most of us want to get is to be able to be exactly where you are today, like have that idea of being a B Corp, but they might be struggling and want to make sure they get to the first step of at least having enough money to have the foresight of eventually becoming a B Corp. Yeah, just a few things in that. First of all, it doesn't cost really any money to align your business around your why or to have purpose. In fact, I think most companies today that are starting up, if you really start to dig in with the startup founders that are starting the companies today that are going to be huge in the next five to 10 years, already start with that premise. Whether they're officially a B Corp or not is not the point. It's are they focused on doing things in their business that elevate the purpose of the company beyond just profit? And I think that's happening. So I'd love to say, Austin, I would love to say that, yeah, you know, we made that horrible, horrible mistake back in 2001. And it was really difficult. We've never had any issues since then. It's been just rainbows and fairies ever since. But that certainly is not the case. We've grown a lot by acquisition over the years. In fact, we've acquired 21 companies in the last 10 years. So one of the growth strategies that we realized early on when we started focusing and growing out of our software as a service business to focus on the agency business that we're focused in now. And we still have strong roots in both areas. But one of the things that when we were making that transition that we figured out pretty quickly is that when you're doing work for other companies as an agency, as an ad agency essentially is what we are, we're going to have ups and downs. A couple of years ago, for example, we acquired another ad agency here in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was an agency that's been around for over 20 years and was pretty well known in the region and had a great core client business and was doing really cool things. Six months after the acquisition was final, we lost the biggest account. It was the account that had basically carried that agency for a dozen years or more. It was like 40% of their entire revenue gone one day. We had nothing to do. There was no way we had any control over it. What happened was the CMO, the chief marketing officer was fired and the new person that they hired to come in to replace the CMO brought in their old agency, the agency that they used to work for before they were hired into that position. And prior to that, it had just been an automatic renewal every year for you know 12 years. And so we had nothing, no warning. It just happened. It was 40% of the business. And well, one second, just so we understand totally. So the company that you were acquiring, the chief marketing officer got fired right before you acquired it? No. So we acquired the business and brought over all those people and started servicing all the accounts. These were our clients. And then our largest client that had come over with that acquisition, the client, their CMO was fired. And then they brought in an agency, an out-of-state agency to boot that took that account. And it was devastating. I made another mistake. It was another one of those same kind of things that I did back in 2001. I was way too slow in responding. I kept talking to our business development team and they would say, Jay, we've got five prospects. We put out five RFPs and we're going to hit one of them for certain. No question we're going to hit one of them. We were overstaffed by about 30 people for a long time. And what started out as two months, then became five months, then became seven months. And we weren't building enough business underneath it to replace the business we lost. And it put us on our ear for a while. It wasn't devastating financially as it was back in 2001. It wasn't like we could go out of business, but it was really, really hard on us. It affected our culture. I don't see how that could have really been your fault because I was thinking maybe the person who was part of that company that you acquired left that was part of the marketing or whatever, but there was really no foresight that you could have seen that was going to occur. I mean, it just stinks. Like I thought maybe the other company was hiding it that you acquired. No, that didn't happen. Yeah. So, I mean, but that has a hurt. Again, it didn't seem like that'd be hard for you to know. If it would have happened, what, nine months earlier, yeah. then it would make the acquisition make cheaper for you, right? Because then you would have understood. But yeah, that really stinks. That happened right after you got them a few months later. Yeah. And so now we, we're much better at RFPs, our contracts. We have figured out a better way to do most everything in terms of the relationships we build with our clients. Yeah. So how do you keep that from happening like now in the future? I mean, again, something we could learn from if we're trying to acquire a company. Yeah. Part of it is in how we structure our contracts. And it's kind of, it's not something that we share too openly because it's a little bit of a competitive advantage that we have in terms of how we structure those. 
that we don't want every other agency on the planet to figure out. But we figured out a way, essentially, to create a recurring revenue through the agency clients that we have that is more stable and consistent. And we have a much longer runway now to transitions. So if something were to transition out and away from us, we're going to know about it way before it actually hits. And we have opportunities to backfill and find clients to kind of fill that pipeline so far in advance that it's much less likely to put us on our ear again. Right. So they might have to give you a year's notice or six month notice, something like that. Just keeping it general. Yeah. Because, yeah, obviously you're going to learn from a hit like that. So you want to take it from there. When was that acquisition? And like, how big was your company when you acquired that company in Nebraska? At the point in time that we made that acquisition, we had around 160 employees. And that's what took us up to above 200. We have a couple of businesses that we've developed internally that we've actually sold as well. We have four different businesses, actually. We kind of refer to them as uh, intrapreneurs in our company. If, if someone in our business comes up with an idea to create a company or concept, then it's not like right straight down our alley. It doesn't fit our core niche today. We will find a way to invest a little bit, move it over to the side, give it tons of support through the rest of our business enterprise and build it out. One of those companies is a company called Payment Spring that we developed internally. It was a competitor to Stripe and Braintree, the payment processing tools. We learned that there's so many people that are frustrated that if you're a business and you take credit cards at your place of business, so a card present transaction, you're going to use one payment processor. If you then take credit cards online, you take a different processor like Stripe or PayPal or Braintree or something like that. If you want to do mobile devices, like we have a lot of nonprofit clients, that's the industry where we're growing the fastest right now, by the way. We have tools and technology that we've developed, software as a service tools that we've developed in that space. And so we're adding more than 50 nonprofit clients every month as we continue to grow. And nonprofits have these silent auctions or whatever all the time. And so they go to the back of the room and they had to get square so they could put the little dongle in their mobile device and transact a payment. And then if they wanted to do recurring payments, they had to use yet another payment processor. They were using like four to five different payment processors to take all the different modalities of payments that a business or a nonprofit needs to take. And we develop technology that allows them to run it all through a single platform at the lowest rate. So the same cost that they're going to do through PayPal or Stripe or even lower and we sold that business a couple of years ago to a billion dollar public company that focuses in the educational space and they're growing the heck out of it right now. So we had kind of a major exit with that. And so several of our employees that part of that team that were really part of our family at the time went along with that acquisition. We did the same exact thing with the IT services business that we had started up internally and then sold that and merged it in with another company. We have a book publishing company called Red Brush that's out to kind of reinvent how people that are thought leaders in their space can self-publish because there's a lot of unethical practices that happen in that space that we learned about when I was publishing my first book. What do you mean by that? Well, there are a lot of self-publishing companies. So if you're a speaker, for example, and you're on the speaker circuit and you're out talking about your topic or a consultant and you're trying to drum up business as a consultant by doing public speaking, everybody says the best practice is you got to write a book. You got to self-publish a book because the majority of those people are not going to get random house to finance their book project. Only about one out of every hundred people that propose a book project to a publisher is going to get the publisher to take them on and publish it. So the other 99 have to self-publish. And most of the self-publishing companies out in the world, and I didn't know much about this really before we started Redbrush, but most of those self-publishing companies have a little fine print where when they go out and they register your book number, essentially your rights to copyright that book, they own that block of registrations and they don't transfer it to you. It's just a little thing that they do. And then that way, if the book does end up doing something and starts to create income or money, they've still got their tentacles in and they step back and require licensing fees for you to be able to republish or maybe do a second edition of your own book. We've seen it happen to so many different authors. And so Phil Whitmarsh, the guy who runs this part of our business, came to us from one of the largest self-publishing companies in New York City. 
And he was just tired. I won't mention the name of it because I don't want to create a direct war with them, but he was really tired of the way that they were tricking essentially their authors into using their service and what they thought was a way that they were paying for and getting ownership of their own property when in reality they weren't. They were essentially leasing it through this large self-publishing company. And it was just unethical. He was frustrated by it. So he came to us and pitched us this concept of creating a better way to do self-publishing. That business is growing really rapidly now as well. It's been really fun. Yeah, the reason I asked is just because we had one guest on about it, but it seems like I've heard more and more about self-publishing people. You pay 25, 30K and they'll make a book for you. And I'm just curious, since obviously it sounded like you at least had to do some research and that was one of your spinoff companies. But speaking of which, how do you stay focused? Because to me, it sounds like, okay, I mean, it's good that it seems like everything's always been performing well, these companies that you've been making, but to have all these kind of different spinoffs internally, how do you know when to put money in, when not? I mean, you have to talk to anybody else in the company about making these kind of sub companies within yours? It's a great question. Really insightful question, Austin, because you brought up Warren Buffett earlier. Warren Buffett, one of my favorite quotes from Warren, he said, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. <laughs> That's sage advice coming from Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and they all attribute their success along with Warren Buffett to focus. And having the not to-do list is even more important than the to-do list. And so I've thought about that a lot over the years. It really comes down to delegation and specialization. I believe that there's huge, ample opportunities for all of us. I used to think of myself as a starter. You know, I started several nonprofit organizations. I started several companies. And that used to be the thing that I prided myself on as being somebody that I was a creator, a starter. As I've gotten older in my life, I have uh, since really kind of settled on, I want to be known for the rest of my life as a finisher, as the person that takes action and figures out how to translate ideas into action and action into opportunity. That's what I've been focused on for most of the last five, six years of my life, just figuring out how to do that. To answer your question, it requires substantial trust in others. It requires surrounding myself with just amazing people who are motivated to do great things. You know, I've often said we don't hire really smart, skilled people around here and then motivate them. We hire motivated people and then inspire them to just totally kick ass for our company and what they do. And people want to be part of something that is bigger than themselves again. So starting with a company of purpose as a B Corp and everything we do revolves around our power of three program where we give 1% of our top line revenue back to the community. 2% of our products are given to nonprofits that need help and 3% of our people are so every employee in our company is required to spend one full day every month volunteering for a nonprofit of their choice, something that aligns with their personal mission. We call that our Power 3 program. And that applies to all these different elements that I'm talking about. And people want to be part of something like that. I bring these amazing people in. We give them the tools and the leash that they need to go out and do what it is that they need to do. And then I touch base with them. We talk strategy, but I'm hands off at that point. And I think that's the key is you've got to be able to put great people in place, inspire them because they're already motivated, inspire them to do great things, give them vision and let them just go to work. Delegation and letting each person that you're delegating to focus very specifically on their thing so that there is someone who wakes up every morning thinking nothing about whatever that particular business is and whatever that task is. It's not me, it's them. That's the key for me. How about personally? Because we've talked about business basically the whole time. How do you deal with that? Did you have a routine or has it switched, I imagine, as you've gotten older and started your company? How do you deal with that with friendships or anything of that nature? Has that all been great so far? I think that truth be told, entrepreneurs are, I think they're exceptions and we never hit 100% when we start to categorize people and group everyone together. But entrepreneurs, in my experience, are largely very lonely people. Entrepreneurs are people who are driven by whatever it is that they're driven by. We're all driven by something different, but we're driven to achieve and get outcomes and success. And we play hard, at least most of the entrepreneurs that I hang out with in my YPO and EO circles and people that I've learned from and that have been my mentors over the years, they're people who play hard. And I consider many of them to be great friends, but 
it's not the same as somebody who lives their life around relationships where they spend every other evening hanging out with their buddies at the bar or whatever. Entrepreneurs are in their office working their butts off during those five hours that other people are hanging out at a social event or a bar or whatever else. I'm wired that way. I have many people I consider to be really dear, great, amazing friends, but I don't talk to them every day. I certainly don't get together with them more than once every couple of months. And we have a great time when we get together, but I'm working. I spend a lot of time thinking and focusing on how I can elevate and keep moving forward. And I like it. There are people that would hear that and they say, oh, that sounds so sad. It doesn't feel, it fulfills me to a great extent. The relationship I have with my wife and kids is the exception. You know, I'm engaged in a deep way with my family, but not so much outside of there. I think that the relationships maybe take a little bit of a hit when you're so focused on growing and building a legacy. Have you ever gotten away from that with your family, like your wife and kids? Yeah, I will say that, again, in a, a little bit of a vulnerability share here, that's not something I talk about a lot. I was married previously. I was married to a wonderful woman who is someone who I still so deeply admire to this day. She's a special education teacher. She does amazing things and works with kids in a way that I, again, I admire so deeply. But I definitely was working a lot. You know, you could use the phrase workaholic or whatever, but it was more than that for me. It was that in my spare time, I love to travel. I love to pursue adventure. I like to go hella skiing and scuba diving with sharks or whatever and do crazy stuff. And just, it's the way I'm wired. And she was the exact opposite. And I knew all along that this is just not, we're so different in the way that we're wired. This is not going to work. And so I was divorced and that was really embarrassing. Again, I hardly ever talk about that because it's something that I'm certainly not proud of, but it led me to meet a woman that loves to do those things with me. I have a bucket list with her. We have a couple bucket lists with my wife, Tanya, and we want to have meaningful experiences in a hundred countries. And we're on number 52 right now. We're working our way around the world. We just got back from a great bicycling adventure across Croatia and Slovenia. She just trekked to Everest Base Camp. And the same week, I did a four-day trek to Machu Picchu in Peru with my EO forum. And we're just always focused on what's our next adventure. We're going on a big trek to Vietnam next year to go trek through the world's largest cave. We go to Burning Man every year. It's a way for us to stay connected and to kind of recharge there. So we're burners and all that stuff. But I'll tell you that if I wouldn't have been on the path that I was on with business and met my wife, Tanya, my life would not be even a fraction of the quality that it is today. She is the reason that I get up in the morning because I just love experiencing life with her and love traveling the world and going on our next adventure together. And she pulls me into new adventures constantly. And it's just amazing. So as a lifelong recovering introvert, who's wired as an entrepreneur to have a wife that seeks adventure and is extroverted enough to pull me into so many really great things. It's a good life. No, I appreciate you sharing that. It doesn't sound like maybe it was so much work. Maybe it could have with the first marriage, but maybe more just realizing personality. And it's a good thing that you realize that at the point you did. Some of the entrepreneurs I talk with, it seems there's a pattern where you just kind of lose focus on other things and just focus so much on work. I try to ask if there's anything that helped them get refocused to make sure that they balance their time a little bit more. I don't know if you've had this with your second wife or with your experiences now, if you have a daily routine that makes sure you don't get too sucked into the work and not worry about working out or friendships or family. Yeah, we do. We have a great routine and we work together on it. She was here in 2001. She was one of the co-founders of the company. And so we essentially started this company together and still run it together. We have very distinct duties so that we keep our responsibilities separate enough that we don't have conflicts at work. And we have a rule, a hard rule, that we don't talk about work at home. And we don't. I'd say 95% of the time, we're exceptionally good at keeping that separate. You know, our home is our sanctuary. And when we're traveling together, we'll stop and we'll have to work for a couple of hours occasionally, depending on how long we're gone or where we are, what we're doing and get that done. But then we stop and we don't let them seep into each other. You know, our adventures together, our home time and our work time, we keep those things separated and it works really well for us. How many children do you have? Three children. So do you take them on all these adventures or do you have a good babysitter? How does that work out? 
they're older now, so all three of my kids are in their 20s, so it's really awesome. I thought I was going to hate having an empty household because I really did love having them around at home. Our house was the house that everybody hung out at, and I love it. It's been so great. Well, great that they're out now or great when they were there? Because maybe they shouldn't listen if it's the latter. All of the above. It was great when they were in the house, and I thought I was going to hate it when they were gone, but I tell them this all the time. I'm so happy, and they're doing great things. They're all doing so well, and in great relationships themselves. And I'm just so incredibly proud. I do a lot of public speaking. And one of the things that I do for Firespring for our business is I go out and we'll do keynote speaking presentations to help elevate awareness in the nonprofit sector. So I talk at nonprofit events all over the country. I do probably 60 different speaking engagements a year traveling around the country. And I tell a story in my keynote presentation about my daughters. And it's really funny. There's not a day that goes by that I don't get an email or some kind of notification or from a Twitter follower. As I continue to grow and share this stuff, I've started to get a pretty big Twitter following. And these people are reaching out asking how my daughters are doing because I talk about my girls in my keynote presentation. And so now I'll travel and I've been doing it long enough now for about seven or eight years. I'll travel to a new city I was just in. Where was I most recently? The speaker's dilemma. You forget where you've been most recently. But in North Carolina, this woman started asking me questions about my daughter as if she knew her intimately. And I realized she had heard me speak three years earlier and I told the story about my girls. So I weave family stories into my presentation. So it kind of feels like my kids are involved in the business in that way a little bit. You're talking about culture early on. And I mean, I checked your Twitter thing. Yeah, you do have quite a following at like 125,000 plus people, but it looks like the background. Is that your office? Yeah, that's a photo of our office. Okay. Since everyone's audio right now, I mean, what I'm seeing is like, it's pretty cool. So I can see why the culture is, you got, you know, obviously the ping pong tables and all that other stuff, but I see a slide going down from one story to the next story. Yeah, we do. We have a slide that takes people from the second floor down to the first floor in the building. It's pretty cool. Do you want to brush on that a little bit as far as like easy techniques or something that could help us if we have a company as far as building culture? Because I think most people have listened. That's a definite thing more and more people touch on. Any simple things that we can do to first kind of get it started and hopefully have one like yours? Yeah, I think part of that is just understanding what culture is not. As you well know, and most of the people listening to this know, culture is not about the perks. The fact that we have a slide in our office or we have a great break room or ping pong or pool tables, that stuff has nothing to do with culture. You know, those are things that have to do with creating an environment where culture can develop and grow for certain. But those perks and those kind of things are great, but a horrible culture could thrive <laughs> thrive in a negative way in a building where they have really cool things around for certain. So, you know, for us, culture is about everything, is about living the values of the organization. We have a daily meeting. We've been doing this for more than 10 years. We have a daily meeting where every single employee in the company gathers together, remote team members log in online and participate remotely. And we call it the Firestarter meeting. And at the Firestarter meeting, every single day, we recognize each other for living our values. We only have three. I'm a huge believer in succinctly stated values that you can wrap your hands around. They're visceral. You know what they mean. You know what it means to live them. Our values are bring it every day, have each other's back, and give a shit. And those are the three things that everything revolves around. And when you have everyone in complete alignment around what those things mean, and when we have you know, our Values Hall of Fame where people are inducted once a quarter and then they show up in our culture book at the end of the year. So we have a book that highlights and features the people that are inducted into our Values Hall of Fame and what it means to live those values. So we tell real stories of people who have done something that someone else has recognized them for. You know, Tony had my back the other day. He did this. And it's a really great way to propagate culture in an organization when it's so clear what it is that people need to do to live those values. And most companies just talk about them. And I think most companies do a good job talking about them these days, but there are a few companies that really do a good job providing daily recognition around what it means to live those values and calling people out and recognizing each other for that. It's so important. I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. 
And it makes sense for me, a company like your size, if you did it daily, you're able to recognize. But say if you have only have a couple people in your company, how would you go about it? Because it's like hard for me to say every single day yeah. if I get assistant, like, hey, good job, you did that. Versus it just becomes like I'm doing it versus actually meaning it, you know? Yeah, see, in our opinion, we think a company needs to be at about 30 to 40 employees in order to be able to start building a value recognition program that is meaningful, that's going to help that organization grow in the right way. You're absolutely right. If you've got 10 people or eight people or three or whatever, and you all stand together for five minutes every day doing a daily stand-up meeting and you just go around the circle and recognize each other for living your values, it gets awkward. Right. Yeah. You're just making stuff up. Like, yeah. good job. You got water today. Yeah. It doesn't work <laughs> for smaller teams, but there are lots of other things that smaller teams should and can do that help them create a culture where everyone feels aligned with each other. There's no question that a startup that does it right is able to create that same kind of inclusive culture where people feel valued and people want to be part of it. Regardless of whether it's three people or 300 people, you can create that sentiment. Could you just give us one or two examples that you could think of that I know you deal with usually the larger, like 40 or plus, like I'm glad that obviously you recognize that too. Is there a few things that I could do if I've got a team of three or four that you would could help us? I think the most important thing when you're a really small team is to do a really good job of laying down, I just kind of refer to them as the side rails of the business, to have a framework that where everything makes sense. And if you've read a book called Traction by Gino Wickman, in that book, Gino talks about the framework behind the entrepreneur operating system model, where one aspect of it is that you're aligned. Every single employee in the organization is aligned around the eight questions that every business needs to ask themselves and know the answer of. And so it starts with your core values, number one, your core focus, that's the niche. What is it that we do better than anyone else? What's our 10-year target? So that's the BHAG that Jim Collins used to talk about, the big, hairy, audacious goal. 10 years from now, we're going to push the envelope and we're going to grow here. And how are we going to get there? It's going to make me feel a little uncomfortable. Really? There's three of us now and we're going to be there in 10 years? That seems crazy. You should be able to defend it. But having that 10-year target and then the marketing strategy behind everything. So that's who is the client. Define the client and what is the unique thing that you have that they need. What is your three-year picture? It's the painted picture of what this organization is going to be like in three years. It's not a goal. It just paints a vivid picture of how it's going to be to be part of this. And then the one-year plan. So these are the three to seven goals for this year that we have to accomplish. The 90-day rocks. Stephen Covey, who's my favorite all-time you know, self-help guru, I think he's done the quintessential work with his seven habits of highly effective leaders. He talked about we humans we can plan appropriately for goals in 90-day sequences. If you try to set a goal that's a year out, what most of us do is we wait till the 11th month and then we start working on it. The 90-day rhythm, so three to seven things that we have to accomplish this quarter. And then what are the issues? So constantly, every time, every day, something comes up, an idea, an opportunity, let's build the issues list so we can talk about it. Those are the eight things. And if we have that framework, and if you're only three people, but all three of you are intimately involved, not just in knowing this stuff, but deciding, setting it, being involved in deciding what is our three-year picture. If I'm going to be here in three years, what's it going to take? What does it need to be like for me to be so invested that I want to help us get there, that I'm going to work my tail off? I want to help build that. What's our one-year plan? But to have them part of that. So to answer your question, I think culture is created in smaller environments by just being 100% aligned around the vision of the company and then knowing what those guide rails are to get you there, having a framework and a repetition and a sequence so you know we always are going to have a meeting every Monday at 7 a.m. or whatever it is. That's going to be our commitment to the three of us. We're going to have that time put aside and we're going to make sure we don't schedule doctor's appointments in that time frame, whatever. We're going to honor each other. That's going to be our rhythm. Our rhythm is every Monday at 7 a.m. But to having those kind of things defined and then having the vision defined and have everyone in included in that, that is what builds culture in a young company or a small enterprise. That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that and doing the interview with us. If anyone wanted to reach out and say, thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? 
I'm a huge believer in LinkedIn. I think it is the phone book of the future. I think in years from now, we'll all be using it as the way that we stay connected with important people in our professional lives. So I'm open to connecting with anyone on LinkedIn. If you just mentioned that you heard this podcast, I'd be happy to connect with you there. Also on Twitter, my handle on Twitter is jwelk, J-A-Y-W-I-L-K. I will check that frequently and respond to direct messages. So you can reach me in either of those ways or just find us at firespring.com. You can go there and learn more about our company and connect with us there as well. Thank you. And I appreciate you, especially the last steps about what culture, especially in a smaller company, kind of understanding the differentiation between like a medium size and small. Is there any last thing that you want to leave with everyone who's listening right now? No, other than just go get it. You know, I think that the noblest of all professions is to live your life in a way that impacts other people. And I'm a huge believer, if you haven't already got that from this discussion we've had, that business should be and must be used as a force for good. And if we're thinking about growing business and expanding our place in business, whether we work for a company or the founder of that company, I encourage everyone to think about how can you broaden your impact on the community around you just focus on the abundance mentality because the more that we all are focused on that, the better off we're all going to be. I'm a big believer that the rising tide raises all boats and if we all contribute to that tide, it's gonna make it better for all of us. So get out there and use business as a way to make the world a better place. All right, well, thank you for doing the interview, Jay. Thank you so much. If you like this service slash tech interview, then you'll probably like these episodes too. Try episode 53 with Greg Roulette, where he talks about his failed career as a rapper that led to him starting his marketing company. Or episode 51 with Adam Robinson. There he talks about laying off his entire staff during the 2007 recession and being a half a million dollars in debt. Or try episode 42 with Justin Cook. He discusses how to buy an online business that's already up and running instead of starting one from scratch. As always, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews.